This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com and the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a marvelous and mindful life. So if you're trying to live a healthier life and you find yourself struggling with cravings and you find yourself losing a lot, then today's episode may be the missing link. My guest's groundbreaking research has led to interventions on smoking cessation and eating that are literally five times more powerful and more effective than anything else we've seen. So I can't wait to share that with you. Actually, I can wait a teeny bit because I got three bits of business before we get to it. The first is the sabotage report is still available. You can get that at plantyourself.com slash sabotage. And it's really specifically about stopping early stage self-sabotage. When you want to make that change, you want to start exercising, you want to start eating better. And then shortly after you begin, the whole thing falls apart or peters out. And this is really the most common time for these problems to occur. It's much rarer to do it for six months or 12 months or 18 months and then fall off the wagon. Usually it's the very first few steps that lead to these problems. And I wrote a report that identifies the three big mistakes people make when they begin a change effort that leads them to self-sabotage so soon. And not only do we identify the problems, but I give you three strategies for each one to prevent it or solve it if, it's, if it comes up. And you can get that whole report at plantyourself.com slash sabotage, all lowercase. The second thing is, the report has gotten some really positive feedback from folks who said it's incredibly helpful to them, and so I wanted to expand it. And so what I did was I recorded three, oh, 45-minute to hour-long presentations, audio presentations on the Sabotage Report, and I've put them together into a little product for you. And it's $19, and it includes, of course, the report, which you can get for free, but also these three audios that really go into it in depth, include examples, stories, and also exercises that I encourage you to do while you're listening. You know, the kind where I say something like, okay, now let's pause the recording and take a couple of minutes and do this thing, and I'll see you back here when you're done. So it's not just passive listening, it's actually giving you the tools and a little bit of the practice to overcome your own tendency toward early stage self-sabotage. And the whole course is just $19. You can sign up on that same page where you can go to request the download, plantyourself.com slash sabotage, and look at the blue button at the top and click that, and then you'll find out all about the course, and you can grab it right there for just $19. Okay, so the third thing is you can get that entire course for free by becoming a sustaining patron on Patreon. So first thing, I've been talking about Patreon and kind of requesting patronage for the last couple of podcasts. Sometimes I talk a little bit more, sometimes I talk a little bit less. I would love to not have to talk about it at all because this is getting in the way of content, but the fact is that I need to pay the bills. So I'm incredibly grateful to the 42 patrons who have stepped up so far and are now contributing $271 a month to Plant Yourself, which is so rewarding for me to see that people care enough about this to really support it with, with their resources, with their dollars. And I looked at my finances and did some back-of-the-envelope calculations. And I realized that given the time that I put into this podcast every single month, here's how much I'm subsidizing the podcast, $2,600 a month of my own time, labor, effort, and the, co the hard costs of, of keeping the podcast hosting going and all the other things that, that go along with it. So basically, I'm paying $2,600 a month to send a podcast out into the world that everyone can get for free. And I've been doing this for almost four years. So that's um, 50 months. So that's $130,000 that I have spent. And on the one hand, I'm so incredibly grateful that my life has allowed me to spend that much time on something that has brought virtually no return in terms of monetary. And on the other hand, it's unsustainable and it, it, it can't last. So that's why I've gotten on this kick 
and and why I want you to join me, if possible. If it's comfortable for you to go to plantyourself.com and click on the Patreon button on the right sidebar, or you can go straight to patreon.com slash plantyourself, all one word, and that will take you to the same place. Now, human nature being what it is, I know it's hard to pay for something that you get for free. So what I've decided to do is to make all of my Healthy Habit Huddles available, the archived ones and all the ones that are upcoming, to anyone who becomes a patron. And that is as little as a dollar a month. So for $12 a year, you can get access to all the Healthy Habit Huddles. And this course that I talked about, the Sabotage course for $19, those three audios are actually the July Healthy Habit Huddles. So you can pay $19 if you want it, Or you can become a sustaining patron of Plant Yourself and as little as a dollar a month, but, you know, as as much as you can comfortably part with and feel like you're getting that kind of value from it. And then you can have access to that course and then all the other huddles and all the other courses that I make out of the huddles in the coming year. So, you know, if I do a $19 product a month and you're paying $5 or $6 or $10 a month, you're way ahead, and you're also helping me to make this thing sustainable. Okay, so let's move on to the thing that I want to be sustainable, the podcast itself. And today's episode and today's guest, Dr. Judson Brewer. I already teased a little bit about the value of his work and of this conversation to you if you are struggling with cravings or if anyone you know is struggling with cravings. And this really is the state of the art. Dr. Brewer is the author of The Craving Mind, From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love, Why We Get Hooked, and How We Can Break Bad Habits. And the interesting thing is he is a psychiatrist who kept his meditation practice and his medical career separate for a decade. And luckily for us, it eventually dawned on him to inform his research and clinical practice with the 25-year-old insights that he gleaned from his Buddhist practice. And as he dove deep into the dynamics of addiction, he noticed that the primary Western model for understanding human learning, which was B.F. Skinner's operant conditioning, was just another way of describing the Buddhist concept of dependent generation. And what these fancy terms mean, basically, is that human beings, like all organisms, survived because they learned to associate certain triggers with behaviors that produced a reward that conveyed survival benefit, like oh, look, there's a fruit tree. Let's eat the fruit. Then when we eat the fruit, it's sweet. We get a dopamine rush to the brain that says, this is good. Let's remember it. And we repeat with each loop reinforcing the lesson. And now this was really good. This was fine. This was exactly how all organisms learn to survive, to pair their behavior with rewards that say, yeah, this is going to help you live and reproduce. And so as long as our environment rewarded behaviors that increased our well-being, like eating and mating and resting, finding warm and dry shelter, cool. But along the way, we grew these big brains that complicated things. And we remembered something that went like this. Ooh, high-calorie food makes us feel good. So now we turn to food to ease our bad moods even when we aren't hungry. And as we learn to create new ways to get dopamine, like drugs, alcohol, compelling technologies like smartphones, our minds grabbed onto this primitive learning loop and used it for craving and addiction. And what's really cool about Judd Brewer's work is his pairing of this ancient understanding of human nature and human behavior along with the latest cutting-edge research tools. So there's been a lot of studies of meditation over the years, and most of them have suffered from predictable flaws and limitations. And Judd Brewer, as a researcher and as a practitioner and as a creator of truly effective interventions, is changing the way we think about treating cravings and addictions. So without further ado, Judson Brewer, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have this conversation about mindfulness, largely, as as we were talking about before we started recording, for for my own selfish purposes, but also because I think this this set of techniques and understanding is really a huge missing link for people who are struggling to change their habits and behaviors. So uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Great. So... 
let's let's start with kind of you and your background and how you got into this. So you know, you're on, on paper you're a psychiatrist, which is you know, so I don't usually talk to psychiatrists. Um, <laughs> That's I, a good thing. I, <laughs> Right, or just the imaginary ones, you know. Right. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, you know, sort of the, the 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 psychiatric model of you know serotonin imbalances and all that doesn't really jive with sort of my my view of the world. But like, what's what's your trajectory to your own interest in addiction medicine and in applying mindfulness and and really sort of very ancient um, Buddhist wisdom to to this topic? So how did you get to where you are now? Well, it's been a, a long and winding road, as the song goes. Um, it really started when I was – I had uh, gone through a, a bad relationship breakup right before starting medical school. So I graduated – you know, I was pretty type A in college and uh, was brainwashed to, you know, that I should marry somebody from, you know, <laughs> from my university. And so I was engaged to be married and then – we broke up right before I started medical school and was having trouble sleeping uh, for the first time probably in my life. And, and this book, Full Catastrophe Living uh, by John Kabat-Zinn, landed in my lap. And I, I read a little bit of that and uh, more importantly started listening to the cassette tapes. Uh, my first day of medical school, I started meditating formally for the first time. Uh, that's um, That's like kind of interesting that you were able to – like jump into both things at once. Do you think it was kind of the uh, the uh, the blank slate of a whole new routine that allowed you to to shoehorn the meditation in, or was it actually harder? Uh, it really felt like a new beginning. You know, I don't get many of those, uh, so it was like, okay, let's let's try a couple of things. I'm starting medical school. Uh, let's try something that that can help me really. You know, I didn't know it at the time, but that was something that was going to really help me be better at being a student. <laughs> what, what was it that drew you to, uh, to John Kabat-Zinn's work? Because I, I can remember um, as a really stressed out parent, I was reading, I think he wrote a book on like mindful parenting. Yeah. I can't remember the title. And I was reading it one day and my like toddler daughter came in and wanted attention and I like kicked her out because I was reading the book on mindful <laughs> parenting. It, it clearly did not <laughs> stick. What what about the full catastrophe living? You know, really spoke to you as as an intellectual, as a scientist, as someone who's you know looking for the cold hard facts. Like what 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 about that really caught your eye and made you think this could work? Honestly, I don't remember. You know, I I joke with John. You know, because now I work at the you know we jokingly call it the house that John built. I work here at the Center for Mindfulness uh, at UMass Medical School. I don't. I don't really remember. It was really. I remember the meditations. Uh, well, I was actually. I fell asleep for about the first six months when I started trying to meditate. Uh, but there was something about that that really compelled me. The practices themselves, more than the reading about them. Uh huh. So you, you fell asleep for the first six months. Like I've had that experience of like just being a crappy meditator. Mm -hmm. And and just you know getting up sort of worse than I sat down at least mentally. What 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 led you to to kind of stick with it, especially you know through the stress of the first six months of medical school? Yeah, I think I have a thick skull. I I like to find challenges, things, and then just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. That's how I got you know. Uh, that's how I got through a college. I think it was just. Is that true? I don't know how true that is, but the, you know, just this find a challenge and somebody says, oh, you can't do that, you know, and so I do it. Yeah, actually, yeah, that type of thing. And so it was like, oh, this is challenging. This is really hard. I'm going to see if I can do this. But the funny thing is you can't really do meditation. <laughs> I sweated a lot. I gritted my teeth. I struggled a lot. Uh, and it took about 10 years of that struggle before I realized that meditation wasn't about struggling at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear that a lot from people who are sort of meditators and meditation teachers that like they basically did it wrong for 10 years. And if, if, if we could only understand what they didn't understand, we could be meditating really well from like day one. Yes. And uh, that's something that, boy, I hope that I can convey to some of my students that they don't need to struggle as much as I have because I, I – you know, it was certainly a learning process, but I wouldn't necessarily wish that on other people. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
So, so what, when was the first time that you can remember, me, you know, meditating and and saying, "Okay, I see the value here, not just as a, as a, I can, I can do this, not just mm-hmm. as sort of, you know, pride or self betterment, but something, something that really struck you as, wow, this is this is really valuable." I think for several years it was a slow build. So I remember in medical school, during boring medical school lectures, I would start paying attention to my breath. So there was something about that that, um, you know, just maybe in those moments, and I can articulate it retrospectively, you know, I was I was feeling more calm or I was less caught up in stuff. It took me years to realize, to look back on that later and say, oh, wow, that could have been a lot worse. Um you know, whether it was the stress of medical school or whatever. So there was a slow build. And it was it was actually after about 10 years or so when I was, uh, one, realizing that it it isn't a a grit your teeth forced march. And two, that it was, you know, there was something when I was doing these uh, absorptive meditation, these concentration practices that I really started to see so much more clearly how my mind worked, um, those were some real moments where I was like, wow, this is crazy. And I also, there was some point, I'm trying to pinpoint when that was, when I really just started to see how this, you know, my mind works. And it was probably somewhere toward the end of medical, toward the end of my MD, PhD program. So about eight years of practice in where I was just seeing all these connections and was really able to see my all of the various addictions that I had. That's actually what led to me reading a whole writing a whole book on this. Um, so there, it was probably, you know, it probably took a good, you know, there's some slow build where there's some some benefits, you know, in the first five years. But then between you know five and twelve years, there were just these huge ahas. Right. It reminds me when uh, one year. Um Back, back to my daughter, I was, um, she was probably eight or nine, and it was my birthday, and she hadn't gotten me anything. So she, like, found a book somewhere, and, you know, like, on a shelf that, uh, you know, someplace was giving away. It was, like, it was called Meditations for Men. And she gave it to me, and I really, really enjoyed it. And I was, like, these, these like, one-page meditations are really valuable for me. Like, like, they really spoke to me. And then I looked in the back, and I said, like, oh, this is, like, part of the AA <laughs> thing like this is for meditations for men with addictions and <laughs> at that point i really didn't think i had addictions right which which is, which is kind of mm. hilarious so what, what were what were your addictions because they weren't uh you know like alcohol or drugs or or the things that we think typically think of as needing treatment yeah i, I have a long list i mean and most of them most of them were socially acceptable so I didn't realize that I'd really been addicted to running. You know, I fell in love with it in junior high school and, you know, ran track and cross country and just, and still run. I, I, I still love it. But I didn't realize I I was to the point where I would, you know, go through withdrawal if I couldn't run for a certain day or I would spend my days planning when my next run was going to be, or, <laughs> you know, all of these things that you could tick off the boxes for uh, meeting criteria for addiction, you know, in the in the psychiatric manual. So that's one, but there were, you know, like romantic love. I was so like enamored with romantic love and you know, to the point where I'd have these, this elaborate schemes in college around, you know, romance. Uh, so that was certainly an addiction of mine. And, uh, and you, and you, like I went to Princeton and uh, mm-hmm. I think the, the gender gap must've been a little bit better when, when you were there. Cause my, my dreams of romantic love were, were statistically improbable. <laughs> yeah, I think it was about fifty-fifty when I was there. Yeah, oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> so addicted to thinking, addicted to distraction. I mean, I could go on and on. The thinking piece took a long time to really wake up to because it was just so seductive. And it's not like thinking is bad. It's just that when I would get totally caught up in it or my points of view, uh, that I started to realize that it was it, it was causing some suffering for me and for others. Mm-hmm. So one one of the the definitions that I really like, I think I, I can't remember if this is John Cabot's in or, or sort of a standard. He said addiction is continued use despite adverse consequences, and that yeah. that kind of just sounds like like most of our lives. 
Yes. Yeah, I learned that in residency training uh, when I was – and it's just such a simple yet comprehensive description of addiction, right? And it and it shows how it moves from beyond the, beyond the classic addictions to, like you're saying, everything or it can depending on how we relate to what we're doing. Right. So, so if that's the case, if it's this, uh, right, despite adverse consequences. So I've got to say, so we're, we're talking about your, your book, The Craving Mind, which I just, you know, finished reading for the, for the second time. So I read it the first time and I, I, my, my impression was this is really complicated. Like there's all these fMRI graphs and lots of different topics. And I say, oh, I really have to go through this and really, really take notes and get a handle on what he's talking about before we, before we get on the phone together. And then I watched your TED Talk, um, and it was one of the short ones. It was like the 11-minute the one, not the 18-minute one. Mm-hmm. And, and I finished watching, and I go, oh, this is really, really simple. Simple. <laughs> so, yeah. so can you kind of go over, just you know, for, for, for people like me who, who are also addicted to thinking and like to see things as complicated so that we can rise to the occasion, like what's the really, really simple idea that you – have um, you came to and and started studying with these high tech uh, techniques around addiction and mind? Yeah, so I it started with you know just discovery of my own mental processes, and then I started looking to see how this was described in literature. And so in modern day, uh, you know, B. F. Skinner is probably the most well known for this. Um, for how we learn around behavior. So positive and negative reinforcement are um, concepts that are taught in Psych 101 and every, you know, most college freshman intro psychology classes. Uh, But it turns out that those processes were described 2,500 years ago before paper was even invented by the Buddhist psychologist. And that's what got me totally fascinated with this because I could not only see that both of these were related to each other and basically the same thing, yet I could see how they could directly, uh, they directly played out in my own life and also in now in my patients' lives as I, you know, work as a researcher and as a, as a psychiatrist. So the, the simplest form of this is, you know, you need three components. You need a trigger, you need a behavior, and you need a reward. And with those three pieces, you can form any habitual behavior. Uh, so a simple one, and this is actually evolutionarily conserved back to the sea slug. So Eric Kendall got the Nobel Prize showing that this process is at play in the sea slug where only it only has 20,000 neurons in its entire um, nervous system. Uh, this was probably set up evolutionarily so we would approach nutrients and we would avoid danger. So if you think of it simply as you know, we, we see some food, so there's the trigger, the behavior is we eat it, and then we get this dopamine signal to our brain that says, oh, calories, you know, survival, that's the reward from a brain perspective. Uh, from a human perspective, I think of this as that's the outcome or that's the result of the behavior. And this is operant conditioning. This is positive and negative reinforcement from a Skinnerian standpoint. Uh, the Buddhists describe this as uh, dependent origination, it's Different words, same process, and they whether it's modern day psychology or ancient, you know, Buddhist uh, psychology or philosophy, it's the same process, and that's really what drives much of our behavior, from eating to uh, thinking to distraction to romantic love. Mm-hmm. So this, I mean, this is a circuit that obviously was really, really useful. At, uh, and at, still is <laughs> at a certain point. Although, although, I mean, so one thing that surprised me when you brought when you started bringing up Skinner in the book, I was pretty sure you were kind of setting him up to take him down, and you know, because yeah, I think a lot of his studies were on animals, and you know, he seems very very mechanistic. Like I had I had been brought up, you know, as a as a sensitive person to think that you know Skinner stuff was 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 kind of like you know we're machines and it's not very enlightened and you never took it down you're kind of like yeah this is this is really the basis of of some very very deep neural patterns that all creatures have and we can transcend it 
Yes, and it doesn't mean that we're machines. It means that we're humans that learn the same way as many other animals. It, it, it can be a both and, right? So I think a lot of people really saw Skinner as this, you know, this is reducing human behavior to robots, like you pointed out. No, we're human. We're just as sensitive and nuanced as we've ever been. And there may be a way that we learn that's very basic and simple that might shed a lot of information on that nuance. Now, I find that fascinating. Uh-huh. So, so one like the simple idea that I got from 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 the book and from your TED talk is that using mindfulness and curiosity, we can create an even stronger positive response than we could get from the addictive behavior or substance which which kind of blew my mind like it's <laughs> it it seems like a real act of of like advanced jujitsu <laughs> In, yeah. instead of all the ways that i have been taught and i have learned and i've used with clients to get them to you know a sort of a brute force attack yeah um so what can yeah. you like what what before before you got to your mindfulness like what are the ways in which um western science has dealt with the, with the problem of addiction, whether to substance or habit or thought. Like, what what are our what have our, our tools been? So there, so in one sense, you know, you can think of the carrot and the stick, right? So, and that actually is operant conditioning. If you give somebody a carrot, they're more likely to do the behavior because they've been rewarded. Or if you beat them for doing the behavior, they're less likely to do it. Uh, we don't exactly beat people for using drugs, so. Uh, there are other things that are out there. So if you avoid certain cues, right? If there's something that cues people to drink, then if they avoid those cues, they're less likely to drink. And there's this saying, people, places, and things. If you avoid people, places, and things, you're less likely to drink. So that's one strategy that's used with helping people not drink alcohol, for example. Uh, smoking, another addiction, a little harder to avoid your front porch, your car outside of work, you know, all the places that we smoke. So there, uh, one of the most employed strategies is substitution. So if you have a craving to smoke, eat some candy, uh, you're, and you'll you can break that. So you can actually treat around that uh, behavior. You substitute it with a different behavior. Uh, this you know, and these work variably, uh, and also with smoking, for example. The, un- unfortunately, the average amount of weight gain that somebody gets when they quit smoking is about 15 pounds, and a lot of that often happens to do with eating candy or eating something for that oral fixation. So these are the standard, the standard strategies. Avoid cues or substitute a behavior uh, or distract yourself. Okay. And, and so, you know, so like one of the questions is if, if we're supposed to like be rewarded, but like mm-hmm. we learn by getting rewarded and then we do these behaviors that are anything but rewarding in the long term. Right. So how, like, what's like, how, how does, how does that work? How how did we get into that mess when, you know, again, you know, these, again, these adverse consequences, like our brains aren't set up to, to evaluate. Is it like all this, like, you know, future discounting from Tversky and Kahneman? Like what's, is that the, the thing? That's it. That's it. So our brains aren't set up to think, well, what's the likelihood that I'm going to get cancer in 30 years if I smoke now? We just can't make that calculation. Our brains are not set up that way. So this is the delay discounting that you're talking about. We're more likely to discount uh, future rewards in favor of immediate ones. And and there are mathematical models for all of this. So our brains are set up for immediate reward. Oh, see the candy? Looks good. Eat the candy. See the cigarette? Jones for a cigarette. Smoke the cigarette. So those – that immediate gratification is what we're set up. That's how we've we've evolved evolutionarily, and it's really hard to take into account all future probabilities. Our brains are just not set up that way, so we can't really trust that part of our brain to say, "Oh, I shouldn't smoke because I might get cancer," for example. But this is where it gets really interesting. So we so we can do these things like you know. Oh, force ourselves not to smoke or, or create these substitution strategies. So eat some candy instead. These are all dependent on these all depend on extrinsic or external rewards, right? So 
Um, and even that's what sets up the reward-based learning is, you know, if I eat carrot sticks, uh, I feel better. Or if I'm stressed out and I eat cupcakes, I feel better, right? That's an extrinsic motivator because it's dependent on getting something outside of ourselves. So that's where all of those pieces are set up for the immediate gratification. If we can actually understand that system, we might even be able to hack it so that we can tap right into that reward-based learning system, but provide an intrinsic or internal reward rather than an extrinsic one. And if we can do that, we win the game. Mm. So what's an example of, of an intrinsic reward and why is it better than an extrinsic one? So the extrinsic ones, they're always going to require that out there. We always need the carrot to continue that behavior. If the carrot no longer is there, we're going to lose the behavior. So if we run out of carrot sticks <laughs> or whatever we're, our reward is, that behavior goes away. So that's a critical piece. So, the, so intrinsic it's, ones, so, so, I mean, it's, it's fragile. Yeah, it's fragile. And the it's, intrinsic ones are always available. Yeah, so there's no limited resource there. <laughs> there's no I need this in order to be happy type thing. It's always oh, it's always here. It's always available. So that's one of the downsides to its extrinsic rewards. An example of an intrinsic reward. So let's use an extrinsic rewarding behavior. Let's say we get stressed out. That's a trigger. The behavior is we eat a cupcake or eat chocolate or eat ice cream. That's the behavior. And then the reward is, oh, we feel a little bit better. We distract ourselves from whatever we were stressed out about or, you know, that we're, you know, we're, we're tasting the good taste of ice cream. There's the extrinsic reward. We have to have ice cream to feel better. What if instead, same trigger, stress, and we get curious about what that stress feels like in the moment? Huh. What does this feel like in my body? So let me ask you this. Does a craving feel pleasant or unpleasant, that urge to do something? Oh, I would say it's, it's largely unpleasant. Yeah. So it's just do something, <laughs> right? It's, so the cravings typically aren't that pleasant. Um, so what does curiosity feel like, pleasant or unpleasant? Curiosity is pleasant. Oh, wow. So we've just flipped the valence of the system in that moment from craving unpleasant to curiosity. That behavior flips the valence from something unpleasant to pleasant, even in the moment that we're exploring a craving. So we've already decreased the the discomfort that comes with the craving simply by injecting a goodly amount of curiosity. So that in curiosity is that intrinsic behavior that itself has a different reward and we can unpack specifically what that feels like in a minute but i want to just make sure that makes sense so far yeah so but you're, you're saying that curiosity is actually a tool that can that doesn't coexist with the craving in a, in a certain sense it's like it's a you know a three-way light switch or something where you can't have them you can't have the craving and curiosity both going full blast I would say that the unpleasant feeling tone of the craving uh -huh. is lessened in that moment. So maybe it's a dimmer switch. So the okay. craving's still there. But as we dive into the sensations themselves, we start to see the components of craving that themselves aren't actually, you know, things that make our heads explode. Like a lot of my patients say, Oh, you know, my craving's so strong my head's gonna explode. If we dive in and oh it's tightness, it's it's tension, it's heat. Well, heat isn't going to make my head explode. Tightness isn't going to make my head explode. So in those moments, as we unpack what craving actually is experientially, one, it's not as terrible or terrifying. And two, that curiosity changes that feeling tone. It feels you know, we're curious instead of um, <laughs> running to make the craving uh, go away or make it feel better. Right. So, it's, so it sounds like a hack because, it, it, again, it feels very much like jujitsu where you're mm -hmm. doing kind of the opposite of what you would expect. So yes. you know, for, for what I learned was sort of the, the, the gold standard for, for treating addictions and cravings was some form of cognitive behavioral therapy like the ABCDEF model where D yeah. is you dispute, right? <laughs> so your, your rational brain is, is online, right? It's blinking green. And you get to argue with the craving and say, well, I know I want this now, but I know I don't want to put on five pounds over in the next week. And I know that, but I was, you know, I was talking to a client today about why he spent the entire day in front of the refrigerator when he was working from home in his kitchen. 
And even though he knew he shouldn't be doing it, so we were trying to get to like, what, what, what was your prefrontal cortex saying about all this? And his prefrontal cortex was nowhere to be found. Right, right. Our prefrontal cortex, as the youngest part of our brain from an evolutionary perspective, can't be trusted. It, it's the first that goes offline when we get stressed. You probably know like the, the HALT acronym, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Yeah. Right. Those are all, <laughs> those are all prime indicators that our prefrontal cortex is about to run out of battery. <laughs> so, which begs the question then, is curiosity coming from a different place yes <laughs> sorry i mean let's think about that a little bit <laughs> but it is coming from a different place curiosity comes from a place of awareness which is a more basic process rather than a thinking process right dispute that d of abcd dispute is a is a cognitive function it's a thinking function it's higher order it's actually much slower if you think of it from a time frame, right? Awareness comes online like that. Whereas thinking, we have to we ramp up the whole system and you know get it working. We've got to stoke the fire. So many differences in in you know time in speed of response in brain you know function and in basic you know in basic systems, it's like awareness is something that's always available, and that curiosity piece is kind of an attitudinal component of awareness, right? We can be aware, judging awareness or what's happening, or we could be aware and just curious. But that curiosity is kind of that the flavor, that the attitudinal component uh, that can come with awareness, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when, when we then, if so, is it a decision? To then, like, does, does the prefrontal cortex have to do its its last little gasp before it goes takes a nap and says, "Okay, I cho- I choose curiosity," or is it like you know I've heard some some of the like the meditation teachers talking about awareness as 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 something that is always there, fundamental, and not requiring any effort. Then, in fact, everything else we do to build our egos is effort. So, yes. but, but and but. <laughs> I sit there and I listen to, you know, Tara Brock or Adyashanti or Jack Cornfield and I'm like, I want that so bad. I want to identify with universal awareness. Why do I have to be in this body dealing with bills and and fears and sweat and heat and right? It seems like the biggest effort in the world to get to this incredibly natural default state. <laughs> this is the cosmic joke, right? It, it in this is where- <laughs> This is what Yoda said, right? <laughs> do or do not, there is no try. The more we want to get somewhere, the farther away we are from actually achieving it. Something that's already available, that's always been available. And the more we start tearing our hair out trying to trying to figure out from a cognitive standpoint what that means, the farther we are away from it. And then we wake up and we're like, oh, it's here. Oh, I can be aware. I can be curious. And it. So, how much effort does it take for you to hear the sound of my voice? How much effort? None. And what if you have no idea what I'm going to say next? What does that feel like? What's that curiosity? Like, hmm, I wonder what he's going to say next. How much effort does that take? Um. Well, I want to say none. <laughs> but but I'm also I'm also here in my office filled with distractions. I'm sort of typing notes. I'm thinking ahead to the next question. Like it feels like there's a certain amount of effort that goes into awareness. That you know, like I I can't remember who I think it was um, Ned Hallowell talked about email voice when when you're talking to someone on the phone and and they're going uh huh uh huh and you realize like they're typing an email right at the same time. So yeah. it does it does feel like listening to you with curiosity and awareness, is taking some form of effort for me not to be distracted by something else. If you're curious about our conversation, how much effort does it take? Less. Okay. And I'm guessing uh, if we're really engaged in a conversation, neither of us is going to be using email voice. Right, right. And yeah. so, you know, so I'm, I'm, go- I'm going back to sort of the, you know, your example of sort of romantic stuff. Yeah. Like when I was really into a girl – like it didn't take any effort yeah. to pay attention to, you know, her every gesture. Like, What did that mean? Yeah. <laughs> right. So that's the key here is 
you know, our brains are constant, you know, especially in the day of mass, dis- you know, the, the time of mass distraction, right, where we've got email, we've got phones, we've got this, we've got that. If we can pay attention and see how painful it is to be multitasking compared to be unitasking, right? What's it feel like when you're totally engaged in a conversation or you're totally engaged in a book? It's effortless. It's joyful, right? So if we can see how painful it is, it becomes a Skinner box. Oh, when I multitask, how great does that actually feel? Oh, not so great compared to unitasking. Boom, there's a Skinner box there <laughs> that says, oh, this is more painful than this. You know, And by Skinner box, just in, in case that's not clear, you know, Skinner would do these animal experiments where he'd have a box of one color and a box of different color, and he would shock animals in one box versus the other. And he realized that they had what they called a conditioned place preference. They would He would condition them to prefer one color versus the other because they wouldn't get shocked as much. And in the same way, if we pay attention to what it feels like when we're multitasking, if we really pay attention to when we're unitasking and really engaged in something, and at the far end of that extreme is flow, which I haven't heard anybody describe anything better than flow yet. Right. There's a, there's a beautiful natural Skinner box for us all. And we start naturally inclining toward that which is less painful or more pleasant. Oh, I can find components that actually help me drop into or in the direction of flow. Wow, that feels pretty good. Wow, my brain starts to learn to do that more. right? Uh-huh. And then it says, why the heck would I ever multitask? This is, this is abysmal compared to just really being with whatever I'm doing. And then the email voice goes away. Gotcha. So I want I want to uh, sort of you know get to at some point the the tools that we can use to to begin to approach this. But before we do, like w- one of the things that really struck me about your book and your work is how science based it is and how evidence based. Because I've been you know inclined to like the idea of meditation as a solution to lots of problems for many years. And frankly, as, as I've looked at the the meditation research, it hasn't been very impressive. Like like mm. tons of holes in it, and um, you know, no controls or, or yes, all sorts of it's a, you know. And, it's and, a very young field, absolutely. That's that's a very kind, uh, yeah. So, so so like you've you've done stuff with with fMRIs. Like I was looking at it and thinking, wow, that's exactly how an fMRI should be used. As opposed to, I think some of the the flights of fancy that are you know, we're trying to um, to extrapolate. Can you describe mm-hmm. sort of you know all the pictures in the book, all the all the little uh, bar <laughs> graphs, and 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 the significance of of the work you did and the real time meditation and and co- collating that with people's um, described experience? Yeah. So the first thing I'll say was I was. Uh, this was completely by accident, but I will call it a blessing. It was a blessing that I never went into uh, getting my PhD thinking I was going to study meditation. I My PhD is actually in, in immunology. <laughs> and I, I did conditional knockout mouse models of stress. I was curious about like the stress and how that affects functioning. You know, like why do we get sick and we get stressed? But I was a molecular biologist, an immunologist. And was just practicing as a, you know, to better my own life. And so I spent, you know, it was about 10 years before I shifted from doing animal work to doing human work and started retooling to learn neuroimaging and to learn clinical trials and clinical studies. And so I had this opportunity for 10 years to really uh, explore meditation practice from a direct experience. And that was such a gift because I wasn't thinking about, oh, how am I going to study this? It was like, what the heck is this stuff? Is it is it good? Does it suck? Does it do anything? And from that perspective, then I could start, when I shifted my research, I could start actually designing uh, trials that were based on like what are the essential questions that we need to be asking right now uh, from direct experience, not coming in from a let me you know let me study meditation from a psychology perspective or let me study meditation from a neuroscience perspective and not really understand the the inner workings of it from an experiential perspective. So I'll start there and say it was really helpful to practice a lot first, and then 
you know, we did just the fundamental uh, studies first. So we took very novice and very experienced meditators and we compared their brain activity when we had them do different types of meditation. One thing that I wanted to look for specifically was what's a common, what are commonalities amongst, uh, across or amongst different types of meditation practices because that might tell us more about how the brain works and also how meditation works. So we started there and then you know, we found brain regions that lined up pretty well and um, a lot of serendipitous discoveries. Like we were looking for brain regions that were activated during meditation. We found, in fact, that the biggest findings were that there were deactivations in certain brain regions like these default mode networks, these self-referential networks. And so if you think of it, it's like we're constantly going through our day evaluating whether something applies to us or not right past future oh am i going to get something from you you know so there's a lot of self as we go through the day and there are these brain networks that are that are now implicated in that and we found that these brain networks were decidedly decreased in activity right. but I, then we wanted to yeah, yeah go I, ahead honestly i had to reread that section of the book because i realized i was it didn't occur to me that there was a part of the brain that wouldn't do that it just seems like that's that's thinking, and you know, to realize that that's not the core of cognition or thinking or awareness. That this this you know sort of creation of the the ego self and the evaluating everything, past, present, future, in terms of how it serves us, like that was kind of a shock to me to to realize that that's not synonymous with thinking. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot more that goes into it, right? Because we can be thinking – so we can be in flow when we're thinking, like we're working through a math problem or we're doing something or writing a book or whatever. You know, um, I actually used writing my book as a flow exercise. We can talk about that later. But the idea is it's letting our brains do their work. And so the default mode network actually gets in the way, these self-referential networks. It's like driving your car with one foot on the brake. <laughs> and that foot on the brake is this is the self coming in and saying, oh, did I do that right? Oh, could I do a better job? Is somebody else going to do it better than I am? Am I going to lose my job? Am I going to, you know, you know, blah, 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 until we've, we've thought ourselves 10 years into the future where we're homeless and on the side of the street, <laughs> you know, that type of thing. Right, or dri uh, driving your car while reading the owner's manual. Right, right, right. So it's much easier if you just, you know, use the, the brake and the gas to drive your car. Yeah. So those pieces actually, those parts of the brain get in the way during much of waking life. Uh, and if we can get out of our way, uh, we can actually move more in the direction of flow where we're actually really – everything is just humming, singing, working very seamlessly. And there's you – know, so – with our studies, we were actually – I didn't really believe our data at first. You know, we, It was kind of different than what other people had found. Uh, so we turned to these techniques called real-time neurofeedback where we could actually give people feedback from their own brains in real time while they're meditating. And this is what you're talking about where we are linking up their subjective experience with their brain activity. This is a really critical piece in cognitive neuroscience in general because there's this big gap between subjective experience and brain activity that hasn't really been crossed much. And this is a technique. This is a pretty new technology. And fortunately, one of my friends at Yale had developed it. And so we could be one of the first to test it out where we could actually bridge that cognitive gap, that first person, third person gap. So first person subjective experience, the third person brain activity. And we use meditation as a way to, to test that and learn something about meditation. And the, the big fascinating take home message from that was there's a brain region that's involved in self-referential processing, but it actually seems to be involved in the experiential components of self. So if you think of, of fear, Right, and if I asked you, does fear feel contracting or expanding? What would you say? Contract in your experience. Yeah, it's contracting. So there's this brain region that gets activated when we contract around things, whether it's craving, feeling guilty, ruminating when we're depressed, feeling anxious. You know, there are all these all these different studies that were showing this brain region called the posterior cingulate cortex was getting activated, and people didn't have a granular idea uh, an idea on a granular level what was actually happening so we could line up this brain activity in real time with subjective experience and what we were finding was that people are actually reporting that they're getting they're getting contracted they're getting caught up in their experience when they're activating this brain region so if fear feels contracting what does joy feel like uh, contracting or expanding expanding 
Yeah. What does curiosity feel like? Uh, expanding. Yeah. So now, and what does meditation help us do? <laughs> Not get <laughs> caught up in ourselves, right? So there's this expanding quality that comes whether we're doing you know, compassion or loving kindness meditation or even concentration meditation where we're out of the way. We're not contracting, trying, doing. We're simply being, being aware. And so that's, that's what our real-time neurofeedback studies were starting to show is we could get these neurophenomenologic correlates of brain activity. Like, oh, this subjective experience of contraction lines up with this brain region getting activated and this subjective experience of expansion of – and whether it's uh, being concentrated or uh, having a loss of a sense of self uh, correlates with brain activity being deactivated. We even had somebody report getting into flow while they were doing our real-time neurofeedback study. So we kind of got a picture of that expansive quality on film. And if you think of expanding, so if your experience expands to infinity, where are you? Where's that boundary between you and the universe? Right. It's uh, <laughs> it, you're, It's you're, not there. You're where the meditators say we all could be. Right, sort of universal <laughs> awareness. Yes, yes. So that's what this these experiments really helped us hone in on this this ex, not only experiential quality, which is described so much as you know getting caught up or taking things personally. There's that experiential self. There are now neural correlates that that line up with that, and then we see the opposite when there's joy, when there's curiosity, etc. But the beautiful thing here is if you take it back to reward based learning. You can see how all of these line up. So when you get excited about your, that you just won something or you're about to eat a cupcake or you're about to have sex, is that contracted or expanded when you're really excited? Ooh, it's a tough one. It yeah. is. So that's a trick question, right? When we look at our experience, so now compare excitement, which has this restless quality that says do something, right? Mm. There are a lot of – Shared qualities between that and wanting and craving. Does craving feel contracted or expanded? Very contracted. Yeah. So it probably falls on the continuum of contracted, whereas joy or curiosity are clearly expansive. So we can take this same reward-based learning system and move from a contracted, externally driven reward to a expansive, internally driven one that's always available. All we have to do is find out how to hack into it. And how do we hack into it? By practicing, right? Getting curious. <laughs> right. So, I'm, so it's, I'm curious about the fact that you go for curiosity rather than joy because I'm thinking, you know, like there have been times in my life where like I was really pissy and, and my wife would try to say something helpful like, what are you grateful for right now? And I just want to like poke her in the eye. Like I don't <laughs> want to be brought there. I want to hold on to my pissiness. Yeah. And it's like telling someone to be joyful, you know, seem, seems very like a dangerous thing to, to do. But yeah. asking people to be curious is somehow it's easier to access. What's the deal? Yeah. So if I say, oh, you should be more joyful, that's when you poke me in the eye, right? So the shoulds come in and that's a cognitive like, oh, if only you were in some different place, you would be happier. That's extrinsic motivator, right? It says, mm. oh, if this, then this. Well, curiosity is always available. So if you're pissy, you can be like, oh, what's it feel like to be pissy? Because you've got that right there to play with. Or if you're not curious, you can ask, oh, why am I not curious right now? <laughs> <laughs> so it's always available. So I, I find it one that is um, – it's easier to tap into. It doesn't rely on the shoulds. You know, We should all over ourselves as some people say. Uh, and the other piece is it, it fits beautifully with the Buddhist psychology. So they described these seven factors of awakening 2,500 years ago. And they um, – it's interesting. They taught these in a particular order. The first two were awareness or mindfulness and the, and the and uh, interest or curiosity. And if you think of those as rubbing two sticks together, you start to generate the heat. Oh, if I'm aware and I'm curious about something, then suddenly all these other factors come along. Uh, I, I like to use a, a book, reading a book as an example. So if I'm, if I open a book and I'm interested and I, I, then suddenly the energy to read that book arises, right? And that's actually the third factor of awakening. And all of this goes all down the line where I naturally become concentrated 
in that book without having to force anything simply because I'm interested. So, you know, joy arises out of curiosity, uh, but joy in itself can be more difficult to tap into, like you beautifully pointed out. Gotcha. I, I'm wondering, like, do, do sea slugs like experience, you know, infinite bliss, like as they're <laughs> as they're going through their like, like is it something? Is it basically humans who've who've developed this neurological capacity to make ourselves miserable and that we have to transcend? That's a great question. I have no idea, uh, but I do know that sea slugs approach and avoid things uh, in similar ways to what humans do. But beyond that, I, I don't know. Because right? there's nothing wrong with approaching and avoiding things, right? No, nope, the... nothing at all. It's how we survive. <laughs> it's just a matter of if we get caught up in that and then make that our, you know, our every day, you know, or every moment obsession. That's that can be problematic at that point. Right. So, so what you did a a study where you're comp- uh, on smoking cessation, where you were experimenting with these ideas compared to um, the American Lung Association's sort of standard practice. Yeah. And so bottom line, this stuff works. Can you, can you kind of describe the study and when you knew that this was a, a really powerful technique, a better tool than we had previously? In short, uh, we did a randomized controlled trial and found that uh, mindfulness training was five times better than gold standard treatment at our four-month time point. So it it works pretty well. We were pleasantly surprised by that and also mechanistically found that it was decoupling craving and smoking uh, just like we had hypothesized – or actually the Buddhists had hypothesized a long time ago. We even did a, a study with – so we started making you know app-based training out of this so that we could have high fidelity and make these things accessible and available to the public. Um, and in a study, we have this eating program to help people with stress and emotional eating. Uh, called Eat Right Now, and we found that there's a 40% reduction in craving-related eating uh, when people use this program for about three months. So there's this, you know, we see now convergent data in different behaviors showing the same mechanism of mindfulness where it decouples a craving from a certain behavior. And if it's beautifully with the operant conditioning paradigm, it, it, you know, it explains it very, very nicely. Right. And that, that really struck me that you're not saying it, it – defangs the craving or declaws it or reduces the intensity it just it breaks the link you can have the craving and you and i love the 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 metaphor you use like sort of surfing the wave Mm. of the craving like you know that like oh here it comes and you get to experience the whole craving without having to give into it yes yep absolutely uh, and honestly if you think of craving as a fire as you stop fueling that fire as you stop feeding it through behaviors, it, it starts to die out down on its own as well. So it's not like craving goes away. We can surf them, those waves, but we become the master surfer. So even if they are big, we can ride them. And also they don't come as hot and heavy uh, down mm-hmm. the road. Okay. And so, yeah, five times better. That, that, that seems like it would, it would be hard to predict that. Like you must have had a huge, you know, much more end than you needed to get a, uh, a standard deviation like that, like uh... yeah, I was we were surprised. Uh, it was a moderate sized study, so we had recruited about ninety to one hundred people, I think, uh, uh, for that study. And the effect size was large enough. You know, in clinical trials, you often need hundreds of people, but with that size study, we got statistically significant results because it was such a big difference. And so you, you mentioned Eat Right Now. So I know I know it's an app because mm-hmm. I, I downloaded and I went through I went through day one. Um, so what's what's the? Can you describe that for people who might be interested? Like what's you have two right? You have the Eat Right Now, and then there's a another a smoking one. Yeah, the Craving to Quit programs for smoking cessation. We actually have a third one that we're in final stages of development. We do a bunch of pilot testing, so it takes a while to develop them. But uh, it's for anxiety. It's going to be called Unwinding Anxiety. Uh, But the idea with the Eat Right Now program is that 
you know, we often fall into these hab- habitual stress and emotional eating habit loops where, you know, it's that eat because we're stressed type of thing. So we can help people change their relationship to eating simply through paying attention to it. Uh, and that, you know, it's it's daily bite-sized pieces of trainings where they get videos and animations and most importantly in-the-moment exercises where they can really use eating because we all have to eat anyway as a way to learn mindfulness. Uh, and we pair this, we have an online community that I moderate. We have a weekly live uh, web-based check-in group that people can join us from all over the world and ask questions. We eat all the time because we're stressed out or because we're sad or angry or whatever. And um, through these bite-sized pieces of training, people can really dive into their own experience and through simply paying attention, learn how to change their relationship to eating. Uh, and it's it's a beautiful thing to uh, witness and be part of as people start to change their eating behavior. You know, I've had some people lose like 55 pounds um, just using our program. But the other beautiful pieces that they start to wake up to all the moments where they can be aware. And so this mindfulness starts to become their new habit. Mm. Uh, and so it extends not just to eating, but to their relationships and to you know other things as well. So it, it's really, um, you know, it's a, uh, we aimed to design this as a comprehensive program and it, and it seems to be working pretty well so far. That's great. So I know you have a, another thing you have to get back to. We're, we're just past the hour. Um, so I, re- I really appreciate the time you've taken today and, and the work. And so if people want to find out more about you or, or download the apps and give them a try, uh, where, where can they follow up? The best way, uh, I think my website's just judsonbrewer.com. It should have links to everything from our, you know, the Center for Mindfulness to the apps to my book. Uh, but people can find the eating program, for example, at the website goeatrightnow.com. That's the easiest way to find it. Say the whole, uh, say the whole URL again. Go g o eat right now dot com, like as in go eat right now. Okay. Um, and then the um, the book can be found on Amazon, uh, The Craving Mind. I think the subtitle is From Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love: Why We Get Hooked and We Can Break Bad Habits. Uh, and then the TED Talk, um, you just find that on the TED site, um, just under Judson Brewer. Simple way to break a bad habit. Great. I'll, uh, I'll get all those into the show notes as well. Great. Um, and last question, what are you working on now? Is it just sort of operationalizing these apps and testing them out, or is there, is there new stuff on the horizon? The, we, we like to do clinical studies on everything that we do. So not only um, doing more clinical studies with the apps, but also developing these flipped classroom models where we can pair app with in-person facilitation. And then we're doing a bunch of neurobiology research, um, looking how to see how the apps change people's brains and also develop uh, neurofeedback procedures from the studies that we've learned so that we can actually um, give people kind of this mental mirror through neurofeedback so that they can they can um, acqu- let's say acquire uh, meditation practices or skills perhaps more efficiently uh, as compared to not getting this type of feedback so a bunch of different types of projects that we're uh, that we're doing and in all the future is looking toward you know bridging these gaps between you know, uh, app-based delivery and neurofeedback and then in-person facilitation and finding ways uh, to best help people change their habits. Wow. I wonder if your your friend from Yale could invent like a $20 plug-in to the iPhone that can give like really accurate neurofeedback. <laughs> I'm guessing in five years there will be something like that. Wow. That sounds like a pretty cool game changer. So, so Judd Brewer, Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for writing the book, The Craving Mind. And uh, I, I, I'm going through it, and I encourage everyone, if you have any cravings, if you have any addictions left, uh, and you have not yet reached enlightenment, this is a, a really a fascinating marriage of ancient philosophy and practice and, and modern neuroscience. So thank you so much. Mm, thanks for having me. This is really fun. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast, Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. More than anything else, those reviews help us reach more listeners and spread the message. For more information about the Big Change Program, led by me and Josh Lajani, visit bigchangeprogram.com. 
And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to everything we talked about at plantyourself.com slash 220. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 219 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast, but not my semi-weekly newsletter, The Big Change Bulldog, you can sign up and also get the Stop Early Stage Self-Sabotage Report at plantyourself.com slash sabotage. If you'd like to support the podcast and you have more time and typing chops than money, consider adopting an episode to transcribe. Um, this will allow us to spread our advocacy to the deaf and hearing impaired and also provide a convenient format for everyone to consume the content. Now let's thank the Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Morrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Volkanovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elsbeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Julianne Rowland, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Bedham, Gila Lacerte, David Donahue, Blair Seibert, <gasps> Dorona Vizov, Rhymes with Keep the Cheese Off, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Rothan Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warabek, The Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Halmus, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, oh. I gotta breathe. Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan, Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, and Craig Kovic for your generous support of the podcast. Also, some people have told me that they don't want me to add their name because they don't want me to have to struggle more than I already do. I love this. And you see I'm taking breaths, so don't let the fact that I challenge my lungs stop you from becoming a publicly card-carrying supporter of Plant Yourself. Thanks also to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. His beautiful song is my theme music. Check out Will's stuff at willridenauer.com. And if you would like to support the show, you can share this and other episodes on social media, email, henna tattoos. You can write that iTunes review. It just takes a few minutes, and it's free, and it's such a help, please. And, of course, you can become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash plantyourself or plantyourself.com, any page, right sidebar, click the Patreon link. In garden news, blueberries are about done, raspberries are ripe, and the heirloom tomatoes are coming in so fast and furious that I have been reduced to gazpacho, and we also got out our dehydrator and dehydrated nine trays of them, so we'll have sun-dried tomatoes through the winter. The basil, we're now starting to uh, try to sell some. So we can't use it all. We've given away all we can. So now we're making up bags and taking it to the Durham Food Co-op and seeing if they can sell it for us. In running news, this is my second week of running real slow. And I discovered uh, that I got in 60 miles this past week running real slow and trying to get up early enough. But I still come home completely drenched. But it's starting to feel good. And we'll see if my pace starts picking up naturally anytime soon. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends.